I was traveling over 200 days a year, representing some, some of the best tennis players in the world. And there was sort of a glamorous, sexy, egomaniacal aspect to all of that, you know, but I was also sleeping with a pad of paper next to my bed and had a to-do list that was 20 miles long and um, working seven days a week. And it was, it was all about the job. Looking back on it, you know, I reached a point, Chris, where honestly, like helping multi, multi-millionaires, if I did a great job, make an extra couple million dollars a year, just wasn't enough for me. It just didn't um, drive me, motivate me, inspire me any longer. In the moment, you know, sitting at Wimbledon finals or the US Open finals um, was exactly what I wanted to be doing in that moment in my life. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, those who have taken the risk to live fully and to realize their dreams. Today, we're talking with Ivan Blumberg, who's a great friend. He was managing director and general counsel at ProServe, president of athlete representation at SFX Clear Channel, and is the emeritus founding CEO at Athletes for Hope. Ivan, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Great to see you, my friend. Always happy to be with you, Chris. It is always a pleasure. Now, I want to figure out how you started this whole thing, because I looked at you graduating from Hobart in 1980, graduating from University of Washington Law School in 83, and then starting at ProServe in 83. That's pretty seamless. Did you know that you wanted to be an agent, because I I just saw saw the Air movie, and and we're talking about David Falk. Who David Falk started as an unpaid intern, right, at ProServe back around the same time that you did. Did you? What was that process like for you? The mindset and how did it work to actually get in and eventually be the managing director and general counsel? Um. So it's interesting. I, I actually haven't seen the movie, Chris, because I, I actually feel like I lived it. Um, and so I've had a few friends call me and say, you know, you, you've got to go see it because um, it was sort of part of your everyday existence. I um, I grew up a sports fan, right? I, I was the guy that um, grabbed the Washington Post, glanced at the back when we actually read newspapers. Remember sure. those days? Um, uh glanced at the front page for the headlines and then sort of scrolled through and whipped out the sports section and read every single word. Um, and that went on for years. Um, I, I knew when I was sort of halfway through college um, what I wanted to do. Um, when I went to Washington University Law School, I frankly had almost no interest in practicing law. I, I, I loved the idea um, of um, thinking like an attorney um, and having the intellectual skill set that I um, believe has helped me in many ways over the years. But 
Um, litigating or practicing corporate law never, ever appealed to me. Um, and I wanted to do something that I was passionate about, right? I wanted to find something that I would get up every day and look forward to doing. Um, knowing I was going to work my ass off, I, I just wanted to make sure if I was going to work my ass off, I was going to do it um, with the enthusiasm and the passion that allowed me to sort of bring it um, every day. Um, getting into the sports business was really hard. Um, it was hard then and it's hard now. Um, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are, um, young sports business law interested, um, but just don't know how to break in. You know, it's a tough, um, it's a tough deal. So, um, it's a long story, but the short version is I was in law school. I was on law review in law school. Um, there were two very, very top sports marketing and law firms in the early 80s. Um, one of them was actually a law firm called Dell Craig Hill Fentress and Benton that turned into ProServe in 1983. Um, in the summer of 1982, um, I reached out to David Falk, who at the time um, was a partner in the law firm. Uh, he was representing um, tremendous high-profile basketball players, um, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, um, Alonzo Mourning, you name it. Um, and I pitched David on the idea of writing a law review article together around the antitrust exemption that the NFL had um, in the United States. And David liked the idea, um, but also understood that he wasn't going to write a single word. Um, and so I wrote it. Uh, we had a little fun with it. Uh, he co-authored it. Uh, and that led to a relationship. Um, in... Did you know him prior to that? How did nope, you reach I just, him? I, I, I got to him through a friend um, that um was a mutual connection and um one thing led to another and in 1983 i had already accepted a job with a major litigation firm in the dc area uh del craighill fentress and benton split half the partners went and created their own separate organization and donald dell who was the chairman of the board um and sort of the name partner called me and said look um firm just split I, I need an assistant um, and I need you to start on Monday. This was a Friday. Um, and I couldn't have said yes any faster, called the law firm I had uh, accepted a position with, which was uncomfortable, um, and politely withdrew that acceptance and started working um, for Donald as his assistant. And um, that went for 26 years. So, wow. So it really, I mean, things really worked out pretty well because oftentimes, I mean, talking about like David Falk starting off as an unpaid intern but to Donald as well, right, back in the day. And the whole thing had changed. I mean, Donald, when he started sports representation, like law firms weren't allowed to solicit back in 1970, right? You weren't allowed to sort of send out solicitation. Everybody thought you were you're suing them effectively if you're if you're looking for business. <laughs> and and this had, had changed. I mean, it's 13 years, but it's not all that long a time. So so you found your way not only into what you were passionate about, 
but by being the assistant to the guy who is starting it, you were in a in a position where you got to see just about everything. Was it what you had imagined it when you were back in as a sophomore in college? I, I think it depends on when I reflect on that question, right? So um, there was a period of time where, you know, I um, I was the first one in, the last one to leave the office every single day. There wasn't anything that Donald was working on that I wasn't involved in. Um, I was traveling over 200 days a year, um, representing some uh, some of the best tennis players in the world. Um, and there was sort of a glamorous, sexy, um, um, egomaniacal aspect to all of that. Um, um, you know, but I was also sleeping with a pad of paper next to my bed and had a to-do list that was 20 miles long and um, working seven days a week and uh, it was it was all about the job. Um, looking back on it, you know, I reached a point, Chris, where honestly, like helping multi multi millionaires, if I did a great job, make an extra couple million dollars a year, just wasn't enough for me. It just didn't um, drive me, motivate me, inspire me any longer. Um, but in the moment you know, sitting at Wimbledon finals or the U.S. Open finals um, um, was exactly what I wanted to be doing in that moment in my life. How does it go from being the kid who took the Washington Post and got the sports page and read every word, so effectively a fan, to to then being a how do you how do you say it? I mean, you're not necessarily you're still a fan, but at the same time, you're working for the athletes and in conjunction with the athletes. But then there also is a relationship where where the athletes in some ways are seen as like the most powerful people because you're seeing on, on television there are heroes. And then you guys oftentimes, you know, the 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 guys in the back are, are often the ones making the machine continue to work. How do you go from being a fan to being the guy who's making the machine work and reconcile all of that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think there's a there's a maturation process, right? Um, you know, you you there's a little bit of a starstruck um, initial the first time you're in the room, the first time you're in the meeting. Um and oh my God, you know, I'm sitting here having a conversation um with one of the most famous athletes um in the world. When was the uh, first time that happened to you? Uh I think the first time that happened to me, I, I would say it was there were two different times. One was um representing Arthur Ashe, um, who was one of Donald's closest friends in the world. Donald was the uh, captain of the Davis Cup team that Arthur played on. They were um, not just business associates, but very close personal friends. Um, and the other was representing Jimmy Connors, um, who was a top 
three player in the world at the time. Um, couldn't have been more different, the two people. Um, and the jobs were very, very different. Um, Arthur was retired by then. Um, and Jimmy was, you know, actively playing. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, um, and I, I think this applies to many jobs and many relationships in life. Um, you know, people don't need to be um, surrounded by yes men. Um, you know, they, they, uh, I think their ego might um, appreciate that. But two things were factored in at the time. Number one, um, the athlete representation business um, then and now um, is incredibly competitive. And so every athlete um, at the top of their game is represented by somebody. And at the same time, they're represented by somebody. Ten other agents are sort of behind your back having conversations about how they can do a better job. Um, and so athletes um, oftentimes leave and um, have somebody else represent them um, with very little um, advance notice that that's going to happen. You know, you represent somebody and uh, you think you're doing a fantastic job and you're sinking your whole life into it. And at some point they, they, just let you know that they're going somewhere else for whatever reason. So that that's always a dynamic and it affects how you go about your job. And then the second obviously was the, the need to tell the truth and to be frank and straight up and not necessarily tell somebody what they want to hear, but tell them what they need to hear. Um, and um, from a business perspective, that translates, right? What What's the best business advice? You're not going to when the athlete looks back, any client looks back, they're they're going to look for what was the best advice that I got that made the biggest difference. Um, and you know, in in individual sports, Chris, you're you're sort of planning um, careers. You're if you're playing basketball or football or baseball, there's a schedule, and you get up every day and you look at the schedule and. You know, the Orioles are playing the Red Sox and, uh, you know, it's Tuesday night. Um, if you're a golfer, you're a tennis player, somebody sitting down and going, you know, you should play this event and then you should play that event and then you should play that event. And that's going to that's going to help prepare you for the majors, the Grand Slams. Right. Um, you want to win Wimbledon. You're going to play this, this and this leading up to Wimbledon. And that's either good advice or bad. But over the years, you sort of learn it. Same thing with um, every individual sport where every athlete doesn't have to play the same schedule. They can pick and choose what makes sense. And at the end of the day, what people are going to remember is the major events, right? The the majors in golf, the majors in tennis. Um, um, when people look back on it, that's that's the way legends are made. Well, it's the way legends are made, but one of the other distinctions is that if you're a baseball player, if you're a major league baseball player, you sign a contract. So you're playing that full schedule, but you have a contract where you're paid every two weeks or whatever it is during the season versus being an individual sport athlete where you're paid based on prize money, yep. based on endorsements, based on the character based on the image, these kinds of things that that you have to orchestrate. And as a coming on the on the tennis side, 
you guys were were a bit of the underdog too, weren't you? I mean, like with IMG with with Jack and and Arnie and Gary Player, you had you had really established individual sport in golf, but tennis wasn't quite at that same. What was kind of trying to establish itself in a in a more in a more prominent kind of way. How much more difficult is it working with individual sport athletes in that respect in that you can get hurt right before Wimbledon? I mean, Wimbledon's supposed to be the payoff that, hey, you're playing great and you're going to this is going to catapult you into something new and and something lucrative potentially where you can afford to be around. But there's a lot greater risk, right? Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. One, it really depends on where you are in the world, right? So, um, you know, think about tennis, think about soccer slash football, think about um, F1, although that's changed a little bit uh, in recent years. Um, you know, a lot of those sports are way more popular outside of the United States than they are here in America. Um, and so fighting for eyeballs, um, fighting for market share, um, is different for tennis in London and England um, and France and Germany um, than it might be in the United States. I think that tennis sort of had its heyday in America, um, both on the men's and women's side. And, you know, in the, the you sort of had the Connors, McEnroe, Borg um, era. You then had um, the Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, um, you know, great American tennis players, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, um, um, et cetera, et cetera. It, you know, it, in America now, tennis struggles because there aren't American superstars um, The to the extent that there was back in the day. From a business perspective, you know, you're spot on. Um, you know, there's got to be some strategic thinking. There's got to be some long-term commitments. You know, the, the best athletes are earning way more off the court, off the field than they are on it. Um, and, you know, those are long-term deals. And at some point, those deals extend beyond your career. You know, we, we represented Stan Smith. Um, if you ask most people who Stan Smith is today, they're not going to know who he is, but Stan Smith has his name on an Adidas shoe that we negotiated over and over and over again, that I think people wear, I know this is going to sound crazy without even knowing whose shoe they're wearing. It's just sort of a hip, cool, um, looking comfortable, not particularly athletic. It's sort of high end technical level athletic but it's a cool shoe um and stan smith has been cashing checks for royalties for that shoe for years and years and years and that for decades know, for decades that was that was um and donald deserves a lot of credit for that but that was great agenting that was good representation um arthur ash had his name on a tennis racket for for years um and so, um, you know, the Jordan brand now is another great example of that. Um, so, and, and there's risks when companies decide they want to put um, an athlete's name on a product and that athlete may not behave in the way that is appropriate under the circumstances. Um, 
there's risk associated with companies putting athletes' names on products that uh, people are buying for the right reasons. And at some point, the right reasons go upside down. Um, and companies then need to respond to um, how they're going to essentially take the product or the name off the product. Um, um, so they assume risk, right? They assume that um, on a cost-benefit analysis, the benefit of having the athlete's name on the product uh, makes it worth it. It's just not forever. It's it's an interesting dynamic too, isn't it? I mean, I I competed for a long time as an individual sport athlete, both skiing and wheelchair racing, and I never got paid to compete. I mean, sure, I won a little bit of prize money. It was never more than $10,000 in a year. So that's not really enough to live off of. I got paid to speak and I got paid to bring my sponsors into my media appearances, to bring them and their story and the connection into my media appearances. But it becomes, it becomes a dilemma in some ways of like, well, what's your job? Is my job to train and compete or is my job to do these other things that actually pay me? How how are you able to because you're you're the bad guy in some ways with with the athletes, right? Where where you're like, okay, we have to do this in order. This is this is in your contract. You have to do this. How did that work out for you with the athletes? Because in some ways it gets to be a bigger voice too, right? So can can we flip this for a second? Because you, yeah. you raised something that, that is curious to me. So um, and I hear this a lot amongst athletes that are sort of in um, sort of fringe professional sports, right? That they don't make enough money as an athlete to support their life. So they have to um, do other things. And they're literally, and you are the perfect example of this, the best in the world at what you do, right? Um, because there's no doubt that in your heyday, right? You're winning gold medals. Um, you're, there's nobody better um, in multiple, multiple sports. Um, do you think the off the athletic arena responsibilities that you had or needed to do to make it work detracted from your um, accomplishments as an athlete? Did they did they take away the time, the focus, the training? Um, because you couldn't be all in um, because you had to do the other stuff in order to make it all work. I think that we, we as human beings have a fundamentalist desire in some ways. We want to see our lives as sort of black and white, right? It makes life really easy. And, and as an athlete, you want that even more so. Like, this is when I eat, this is when I sleep, this is what I do. Everything works in that direction toward the ultimate goal. And, and, and I think that that's what's so compelling about being an athlete is the culture of being an athlete, of getting a little bit better every single day. And, and, and so I think that that's the compelling side. But then the other side is is the having to the having to do the other things in order to pay for you know in order to, in order to grow 
to grow the sport. I mean, I think you talked a little bit about being in a peripheral sport. And I think I was in a peripheral sport. There's a lot of ownership that comes with, with being in a peripheral sport, which I think is great in that the athlete, as an individual athlete, you feel a responsibility for the success of the sport as well. And, and I think that sometimes in some other sports that might not be, it might not be required in some of the more established sports where it's going to keep going, right? It's going to be, it's going to be fine. So I think that there is, so like, for instance, in 2000, I was at, at Connecticut college at the track trials for, uh, for Sydney. And so I'm competing, but I was also doing a piece for 60 minutes at the time, actually 60 minutes too. They used to have a, have one that showed on Wednesdays. And, and if you've ever, I'm sure you've done some work with 60 minutes, it was the most, and I say this in the most flattering way, the most exhaustive uh, research and filming. I mean, I think we, you know, they came into my house, they moved all of the furniture out, they took trash bags and put them over the windows, they controlled everything. We talked for about, about two hours, I think, and you, they used... 90 seconds of that. And so I, I was wondering, I'm going back and forth. I'm late. Everybody else has competed. They've gone home. They've gone to eat. They've, they're back at the hotel. And, and, and I'm doing filming. And I'm thinking, what is my job here? So right. there, is, there is a part of it that as the athlete, you think I could be better prepared. Looking back on it now, I recognize that there that that one it was part of being an athlete, but the other part of it was the greater story that could come out of you know I, I felt like my job in a lot of ways was to point people in the right direction to say well this is where the real story is. So this so Chris at the time sorry to interrupt you but at the time I'm fascinated by this because you're such a trailblazer right I mean. At the time that that's happening, are you aware that you're sort of charting a course for future generations, that you're um, sort of at the tipping point of um, a um, an explosion in um, the prominence of Paralympic athletics, um, its importance, its ability to communicate a, you know, you can do anything if you set your mind to it mentality, because there's sort of like the, in the moment, you're one of the best athletes in the world, if not the best at what you're doing, you're having to do this extra stuff. 60 minutes talks about like, they make movies, right? They don't do interviews, they make movies. Right. Um, but at the same time, you are um, at this moment in the development of your sport and you're you're making a difference are, are are you aware in the moment that you're sort of carrying that around on your shoulders or did it take years later for you to then look back and go holy crap i mean look how far we've come i think for me it started and this dynamic has completely changed this is interesting but anyway i will answer your question but I think for me, it actually started right from the beginning. And part of how it started in the beginning was the year before my accident, I saw a woman named Diana Golden 
who was a an above the knee amputee, a, a, what we call a three tracker, one ski, two outriggers. She actually skied with poles a lot of the time as well. She showed up at a race that I was skiing in, and this was the year before my accident. And she, to me, represented what it meant to be an amazing athlete and an amazing human being. I mean, just the the persistence, the the absence of excuses. Like excuses are just going to slow her down. So she's not going to use excuses. And so, so that to me, I looked at her and went, yeah, those are the scary athletes, the ones who fall down and keep getting back up, fall down, keep getting back up. Those are the scary human beings as well in that they know they're going to fail, but that failure is not going to stop them or even slow them down. It is going to be a necessary step along the way. So I, I was shown Diana early on before before I even had a Paralympic career. But I think I recognized that it was that there, that there was that opportunity. It's funny because it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. And it's almost like the athletic part fueled the story part, fueled the ability to affect a greater change. You know, the idea of you said that you can do anything, but it's also the it's also the human side of it, the the minimizing the barriers in between humans, you know, based on our differences, oftentimes we create structures and barriers in between us and go, oh, well, I don't understand that. And it's like, well, do you understand trying to be the best in the world at what you do? Does the struggle to get there to perfect your craft? I mean, it's part of the reason that for me, I loved like the, the women's world cup soccer team. I do have to say I had a I had a moment fairly recently where we had a watch party for the Olympics and Brandy Chastain was there. And 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 I I I kind of had that moment, that deer in the headlights moment of like, no, you're the one who won. Like you did the you, you, that was the goal. That was the amazing thing. And and just how much they changed people's lives. And I think that that's some of what was really compelling for you. I think was Arthur the first guy that you saw as an athlete who had a platform that changed people's lives, changed the world, used that that celebrity to to really go and and make the world a better place. Yeah, I mean, the 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 the, the short answer to that question is one hundred percent yes. Um, you know, I um, had the incredibly great fortune to represent Arthur, to become his friend. He was a bit of a mentor to me, um, not even necessarily as a sports agent at all, but in some ways as a human being, right? As somebody that lives on this planet um, and grew up in a family where, you know, we wanted to make a difference, right? We wanted to help make the world a better place. But I'm not sure I ever saw the connection um, between the athlete and the platform that the athlete had um, until I um, experienced it firsthand with Arthur. We, in the, you know, you, you have to remember something, right? So Arthur Ashe is a, black tennis player 
that grew up in Richmond, Virginia, right? Just think about that for a second, right? He's a black guy in the South playing a white person's sport in as every- As white as you can play. get. I mean, as like- white as you can get in the South, right? Yeah, Couldn't like get linen it. pants and sort of coat and right. tie back yeah. in the day, right? And right. this is, you know, he wasn't invited to tournaments, couldn't get into country clubs. Um, everything was more difficult for him. Never complained, overcame all of those obstacles, went on to win the US Open. How did he uh, with, overcome them? How did he how did he deal with that and keep going? I, I think he 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 saw the glass half full. He saw an opportunity. And the, interestingly, I think the questions that we talked about earlier, I don't think Arthur looked at himself as, you know, I'm going to be um, a, a black tennis player and break down barriers. I, I don't believe he took that on. And he he received some criticism for it um, in the early sort of Malcolm X days of um sort of racial equality um, that we were experiencing at the time. Um, in the early 90s, um, incredibly, um, Arthur had a heart ailment, Chris, and he needed a blood transfusion. Um, when he got the blood transfusion, um, boggles my mind to this day, but they didn't screen blood for HIV, um, and he became HIV positive. In the early 90s, um, people didn't talk about AIDS if you had it. Um, it was sort of a well-kept secret. Um, I was sitting in my office in Washington, D.C., and a journalist from the New York Times, who I knew really well, called and she said, Ivan, look, um, um, we just found out that Arthur was or is HIV positive, um, and we're going to need to go to press with it. But out of respect for him and out of respect for you, you know, we're going to wait a few days. And I said, thanks. I hung up the phone. I picked up the next phone and I called Arthur and he was in New York City. And I said, Arthur, look, this is happening. There were literally, Chris, five of us in the world that knew about it. Um, we just kept it that close to the best. He said, don't move. Um, and he um, hopped in a cab, went out to LaGuardia jumped on a shuttle. Um, and in about two and a half hours later, he walked into my office um, in DC, closed the door. And he said, look, um, um, I'm sad that this is happening. Um, but now that it's happening, you and I need to figure out a way to take what's happening to me and turn it into a positive. You know, he was dying. There was no known cure. He knew that. Um, but he also understood that now that this was going to become public, um, he felt a responsibility to, um, to use it to make a difference. Um, interestingly, he also knew that he didn't know how to do it. Um, he knew he wanted to make a difference and do the right thing, but he wasn't sure how. And so we surrounded ourselves with some other folks and we brainstormed and we came up with this idea to create um, an Arthur Ashe AIDS Awareness Day at the U.S. Open. So we reached out to the USTA and we said, hey, how about the day before the U.S. Open starts, the Sunday, which is normally sort of a down, quiet day, um, we run this event. 
And they said, um, for Arthur Ashe, we'll do that. Um, I went to a bunch of the other tennis players that I represented um, and asked them if they would wear a AIDS awareness patch on their sleeve um, and play a exhibition on Sunday. And they said, for Arthur, we'll do that. Um, we went to the sponsors and asked them to leave their banners up on the court. And they agreed. Um, we went to CBS and asked them if they would uh, televise it. Um, and they agreed to do that. And before we knew it, we had 19,000 people in the stands. We had 6 million people um, on sitting in living rooms watching um, a sporting event that wasn't about sports. It wasn't about tennis. It was about a cause, right? And that um, um, opened my eyes like nothing in my life ever has. You know, today, Arthur died nine months later. Um, but today, if you went to Flushing Meadows, right, and you walked into that same court, that's Arthur Ashe Stadium, right? Um, and it will forever be Arthur Ashe Stadium. He left that behind. Um, you know, Sports Illustrated um, named him Sportsman of the Year. There's an Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award that the ESPYs, ESPN gives out every single year. Um, he um, stood up to fight against apartheid in South Africa with every um, cell in his being, because it was something he believed in literally to the day he died. Um, and so when I look back on my life, um, when I think about sort of the transition from representing athletes to the um, Foundation of Athletes for Hope, Arthur stood for all of that, right? He understood that he had this platform and this following and that he could use it to make the world a better place. And he did it. Um, he didn't just sort of talk about it. He um, let himself, you know, be arrested um, sitting in front of an embassy um, to, to protest apartheid while he was sick and dying. Um, so um, he, he sort of walked the walk, talked the talk right to the very end um, and it changed my life, um, and, uh, does to this day. How did he face those risks? I mean, you talk about, you know, a black man, Richmond, Virginia, playing a, a really white sport and, and, and being a civil rights leader to a certain extent, right? Because, because it was a big challenge and, and there, especially with black athletes with African-American athletes, like it was, it was an issue where if you made too much noise, you could lose your your position on the team, right? And you had you had some of the other leaders like the Muhammad Ali's. We'll talk about him a little bit. Uh, uh, you, we had you know the Jim Browns, the the Bill Russells. I mean, some of those guys were in some ways untouchable. Uh, you know, I mean, relatively at least at least looking back on it in history, right? Because they were so good at what they did. But and Arthur. Arthur fit into that category, but I'd imagine that revisionist history, it's really easy to look back and say, well, you did that because it was the right thing, but there were risks to your career, to your life, to your family, 
Like, how did he, how did he face those risks and continue to persevere? Cause it's not just as we're talking about, it's not just a game. I mean, this is life and lives. Yeah. I, I think that, um, he's sort of an interesting case study, Chris, because I don't think, um, you know, I think Jim Brown, um, is an example of somebody who was, um, outspoken, um, a strong advocate, um, used his voice. I'd have to go back and study his history, but, you know, Syracuse football and lacrosse player, um, you know, one of the great athletes of all time. Uh, I, I think he, um, became an advocate at an earlier stage in his career than Arthur did. I, I think Arthur was quiet and reserved um, and took a lot of shit from some of the leaders in that movement early on. Um, he had to come to it his own way. And I don't think it was a risk reward um, evaluation. Um, I just think he, um, he recognized that there was a time and a place and the better he got as an athlete, the bigger the platform he developed, the older he got. Um, I, I think um, his play on the tennis court uh, spoke volumes about what a black man can do um, in a white sport in society that wasn't all that accepting of that at the time. I think we've come a long way. I think we still have a long way to go um, in, you know, issues around racial equality for sure. But I think he'd be very proud of um, the impact he had and um, the progress that um, he led um, others to. And um, there are other, you know, black tennis players that will to this day talk about, um, Arthur Ashe was a role model for them and um, opened the way for them to be able to um, perform in a sport that they de not, did not necessarily think was available to them. Which is an opportunity and a responsibility, right? To to the, go and stand on the shoulders of somebody like Arthur. No, to... no doubt. No doubt. Um, it's fascinating to me. Sorry, we digress. But, you know, oh. your Diane story, you know, you... That, that's there's almost some destiny involved in that story right like you, you could have looked up and had role models that you know were able-bodied athletes all over the place and the person that had the impact on you um um sort of was maybe a glimpse into where your life was going uh, it's fascinating actually um and and there's perseverance there that i think it's hard for um, those of us that have not lived it to really understand and appreciate. So good on you, man. That's, that's a, it's been, I, I, I love, you know, I, 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 I tell the Chris Waddell story as a, you know, we are close personal friends, but you know, what you've accomplished and, you know, when you climb Mount Kilimanjaro, um, you know, um, in a, chair or whatever you called it at the time um you know it, it's the same thing right it's not about the climb um it's about the incredible message 
that that sends to millions and millions of people. Um, and um, and I tell about I talk about it because I'm because I'm proud of you, but I also understand the the impact it's had. Um, and you continue to do it in schools with kids, you know, every single day. Um, and, you know, my sense is that it'll be your life path um, forever. You know, it's just, it's sort of part of who you are. But the fact that sort of that started um, with a disabled skier when you were an able-bodied skier is, I've never heard you tell that story before. Um, it's fascinating to me. It's it's interesting. And I had to, my wife didn't like it because I, because I said that she was basically, Diana was like the Jason from Friday the 13th of athletes. Like <laughs> you can never kill him. You can never get away from him kind of thing. And you knew she was coming. You felt like you're looking over your shoulder. And, and, uh, and I talked to her, uh, her, she ended up, she lost her leg to cancer as a kid. And then the cancer came back and ended up uh, dying at 37. So wow. I talked to her, her widowed husband, uh, at, at um you know just recently and and i said hey hey this is what i've said and she he's like oh yeah she would love that she'd love yeah. she'd right. love the jason right of the 13th i was like okay i'm gonna keep using it so it, it's interesting you talk about because because for you when did the gestation because this ultimately got to the athletes for hope part of it right the that that athletes have these unique attributes and how can we allow them to realize their full potential beyond the the sheer athleticism. And you asked me that question to a certain extent as well, because there there's a thought with, with athletes, we get celebrated for being as myopic as we possibly can. The chaos is going all around us and we can focus. Like those are the athletes who in a lot of ways are the most celebrated, but yet recognizing our place in the world how did that work? I mean, 25 years effectively in the agent business and where an athlete is, is in some ways most valuable to you based on the greatest success. So how did the gestation of where you're going to go and enhancing the voices and the unique attributes of athletes being able to celebrate this? When did that happen? Was there a Jerry Maguire kind of moment or how does this work? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it started with, you know, my experience with Arthur. Um, there's no question about that. And then I continued to sort of um, push athletes as we um, started signing additional athletes at some point. We sort of, and I think in retrospect, it was probably a mistake. We insisted that the athletes that we represented um, do some good, right. As part of their careers that they, um, and that led Chris, it's, I've never thought about this in terms of the evolution of it that led to then building into endorsement deals, um, a commitment from the companies that, because remember at, 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 at some level, when you're representing the best in the game, it doesn't matter what sport, it's a leverage equation, right? You have a bunch of leverage. So if you're negotiating a multi-million dollar deal to say to a shoe company, a clothing company, a racket company, look, in a you're going to pay the athlete a million dollars a year, but you're also going to donate a couple hundred grand to 
his or her foundation or to a cause of his or her choice, right? Um, and now, and you do that 10 times with 10 different um, endorse, endorsers. Um, and before you know it, you've got, you know, a million dollars that's going into uh, a fund of some sort. Um, and um, then the athlete needs to sort of figure out what do I care about? Right? Like what, what matters to me? You know, your situation is a little unique in the sense that sort of life um, interrupted. Um, uh, but for every athlete, it's and every person, right? It doesn't really matter whether we're having this conversation with a group of athletes or a group of teachers or a group of CEOs or a group of doctors, right? Um, um, you know, you have this ability to take a slice of your life pie and commit it to doing something good, right? So um, I, I think the, the secret sauce to Athletes for Hope has always been two things. And I'll sort of go back to how we got there, but it's always been two things. It's been um, self-choice. Like what, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? Not what somebody tells you you need to do, not what your agent, not what your coach, general manager, athletic director, whoever it happens to be, um, not what your contract says you need to do because you're just showing up, right? If that's, if that's the case, you're just, you're showing up, you're just checking a box versus something happening in your life, your example, um, that is life-changing and, and it, it, it might be somebody in your family getting sick. It might be an article that you read about, um, how, you know, women are treated in certain parts of Africa that you just say enough, that's not okay, right? Those young girls are entitled to an education. They're entitled to decide who they're going to marry. Um, they're entitled to have bank accounts. They're entitled to own a home. Um, all of which in many, in certain parts of Africa, they're not allowed to do. That's not okay, right? So you read the article and you're like, um, I, I need to do something about this. I, I need to make a difference. So what we found out, um, and, you know, Mark Levenstein is a great personal friend of mine. Um, you know, in, in many, many ways, Mark was sort of the, um, the initial thinker um, around Athletes for Hope. Um, but we sat around a restaurant one afternoon and talked about it. And what we realized was that lots of athletes were doing good work. Um, individually, but there was no connective tissue. There was nothing that pulled them together. They were off on silos, islands, doing their own thing. And so we reached out to what we considered to be um, the leaders, not necessarily the best athletes. In many cases, that ended up being the case, but not always. Um, the leaders in different sports, and we pulled them together. And we said, you know what, imagine, look what you're doing as an individual, but imagine if we came together as a group, imagine what we could accomplish um, both in the United States and around the world. Um, and then we thought, well, what's missing? Um, and what we realized um, was missing was education, right? Um, if you're going to do good, let's figure out how to do it right. 
let's give athletes the tools um, so that if they're going to go out into communities um, and volunteer or raise money or put their name on something, that the impact that that organization or that effort is going to have is maximized, right? That's what matters. It's not sure there's some um, brand enhancement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the reason to do it. Um, it's sort of a sort of a byproduct, um, right. a little bit of a bonus. Um, but if that's the only reason, it's a shitty idea, right? right. Um, um, it needs to be something that you want to do from your heart. It needs to be something that matters to you. And then you show up, right? Then you find the extra time. Then you make it a priority in your life. And so Athletes for Hope started with, um, you know, the Muhammad Ali's and the Andre Agassi's and the Mia Hams and the Work Duns and the Alonzo Mornings, this incredible group of athletes that, you know, every one of them, Chris, has you know, their own incredible story. I mean, Warwick Dunn, um, you know, grew up with a, um, you know, in a, in a family with a single mom that um, raised her kids and she was a police officer and she went to an ATM machine to withdraw some money and got shot and killed. Right. Um, And her lifelong dream was to own her own home um, that she could, you know, put a roof over her kids heads and, he was um, an All-American in college. He ended up raising his brothers and sisters while he was in college, while he was playing football, got drafted by Tampa Bay in the first round um, and f- created a foundation um, called Homes for the Holidays, um, partnered with Habitat for Humanity and a bunch of others. And he, um, his foundation built, furnished, uh, filled with food, um, homes, um, in communities that for the most part were filled by single moms, um, with kids. Um, they've now put hundreds and hundreds of families, um, into homes. It, something happened in his life, which led him to use his platform because he clearly did, um, played many years in the NFL is now, um, a part owner um, of the Atlanta Falcons, um, went back to school, got an MBA. It's an incredible story, but he's impacting lives, right? He's changing this, the cycle of poverty. Um, you know, Andre Agassi grew up in Las Vegas, didn't finish high school um, and founded um, a, a school in the worst part of Las Vegas. I mean, it, I, um gates around the entire school not a safe comfortable place to be um uh started um as an elementary school then added pre-k then a junior high school then a high school i served on that board for 12 years and when when the first graduating class um of high school seniors graduated there were I want to say 21 or 22 of them, a hundred percent of those graduates went on to college. Um, And um, I love this because it's the same sort of changing the cycle of poverty. Um, Every one of them was the first person in the history of their families to ever go to college. 
right? Um, and they go to college and they meet somebody in college and then they get married and the expectation of their kids changes, right? What's expected of them, but what they had to overcome to get there. And it took, you know, Andre and a bunch of um, generous folks around him uh, to do that. Um, he's gone on to open um, with some partner schools um, all over the country, but it's the power of sports. It's the power of athletes to make a difference. So Athletes for Hope started with 12 athletes. Um, and 17 year, years later, the organization is uh, close to 12,000 athletes in 25 different sports. Uh, it's the largest sports philanthropy organization in the country. Um, and we work with the leagues. We work with teams. Um um, we're at the professional level, we're at the Olympic level, as you know, we're at the collegiate level now, we're in a bunch of HBCUs. We educate athletes about the importance of community service. Um, we do that through a series of workshops um, that are really fun and engaging and interactive. And the athletes learn. They learn that they don't need to be famous to make a difference, right? Um, they learn that there's tremendous value to their time, that they don't need, need to write checks necessarily to make a difference. Um, they learn that they can be leaders and they don't need to be a superstar to be a leader. They don't need to be the captain of a team to be a leader. Um, they can sort of lead from where they sit. And all of these skills that they apply to their careers as athletes, they can apply to their work in the community. Um, and so it's a, it's been a, uh, an incredible journey. Um, uh, incredibly proud of the people around athletes for hope that have uh, made it happen. Um, and, um, you know, we've got thousands of people out there in communities. Um, they may have been doing it on their own otherwise, but we'd like to think they're doing it a little smarter. Um, and they're inspiring other athletes to make a difference. To make a difference. And that making a difference is really interesting because I look at I look at you in so many ways, right? And because you talked about the idea of the negotiation with the endorsements. And, and for me, I've always been in a position, it seems like whenever there was an endorsement of kind of like fighting for every last dollar, but then you're talking about the, the contribution to their nonprofit organization or to their particular cause, which is over and above what you've just negotiated in this endorsement. And watching you throughout the throughout the time that I've known you, one of the things that's blown me away is that you've come from the agent side of the world, which in some ways, from our perception, maybe it's maybe it's through popular culture and movies and whatever, but can be a fairly contentious kind of situation where where you're fighting for every last dollar, where 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 everybody, where it's it's you or them kind of thing, you know. And this this might well be Jerry Maguire again, but you know. But, but looking at that, what's blown me away is how you've maintained amazing friendships with the companies and the people with whom you worked or with which you worked as, a, as an agent moving forward. Because this is, this is not just one individual creating something that's bigger. It's, it's a collective with Athletes for Hope but then it's a collective with those companies that are creating the endorsements as well and helping to fund or at least helping to start some of the funding for these organizations. In your mind, is that something that is 
unique to be able to achieve all of this group coming together and working in unison in concert? Um, I, I think it was unique at the time. Um, I, I, I'd like to think that maybe it's become a little more commonplace that people realize that, you know, making a lot of money and doing good are not mutually exclusive, right? That we can, we can accomplish both. Um, you know, it certainly takes, uh, both a company that is willing to, not just write checks, but lean in. So, you know, Nike became a huge funder of Athletes for Hope because they understood um, what was going on. I, you know, I became great friends with, you know, Caitlin Morris, who, you know, is the head of global um, community impact for Nike, but she understood, she saw it. She, she didn't want to just write a check. She wanted to participate organizationally in the process. And that's what you want from partners, right? You don't want you know, Athletes for Hope has an incredible partnership right now with Deloitte, right? Um, and the impact that Deloitte has had on Athletes for Hope so far exceeds the dollars that they've committed to the organization. It's not even close because culturally, they're an organization that wants to, obviously, they want to be successful, um, but they also want to use their um, leverage, their know-how, um, their team to make a difference. And so when you can surround yourself, Chris, and you know, you know this with One Revolution, right? When you can bring in a partner that isn't just spending money, but is saying to you, hey, Chris, you know, we, we want to participate. We want our staff to participate. Um, we want to make um, doing good part of the culture. It can be cause marketing, right? Cause marketing is sort of the, the double bottom line, right? Do good, um, make money. Um, comes back to the they're not mutually exclusive point, I think. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I think you can accomplish both. I do think that and again, it's a it's a bit of a, a life lesson that, um, you know, you get to say shit like this when you're old, um, that, you know, you, you build bridges as you go, right? You build bridges and you build relationships and, um, and you know, you, you try not to burn them by, um, by winning every single detail in the deal um, because there's going to be another deal and there's going to be another ask and there's going to be another opportunity to do some work together. Um, um, you know, a good example right now for me is that uh, when COVID happened, it was actually a fascinating story, um, at least in, in my myopic world. Uh, we, um, in the beginning of COVID, we were going to have a gala right? A regular in-person gala. And then COVID happened and we couldn't do that anymore. Um, and we were honoring Stephen Curry um, and his incredible work at Eat, Learn and Play Foundation. It's mind boggling how much good they do. Um, and so we shifted. And just like everybody else, we turned our gala into a virtual gala. Um, and um, I hosted it, but Steph was our guest and I interviewed him and we talked. Obviously it was all virtual. It was on video. 
Um, um, and we told our story and lots of people watched. And the minute it was over, I got a phone call from a very close friend of mine who's a Harvard doctor um, at, at, at NIH. Um, and he said, Ivan, look, I'm, I'm on Dr. Fauci's um, team over here at the NIH. Um, and we are really struggling to get the important message around COVID um, to underserved communities, right? Um, whether it was the um, issue around, you know, the technology divide, they didn't have access to computers, transportation was an issue, you know, moms were working full time. There was a million reasons why um cultural the, issues as well yeah cultural yeah. issues for sure Their big beliefs time. and yeah um, so he called and he said look I, I how do you feel about using athletes and sports to communicate the importance of the covid vaccination to underserved communities and nothing's more important to me right like if you said to me what's the cause that matters most to you it would be leveling the playing field. It would be like, just personally, like, what, what do I care the most about? Um, I, I, you know, the environment's important and all, all, but those don't make my heart sort of go pitter patter. What, what, what deep down bugs the crap out of me is that kids in underserved communities um, don't have the same access to education. Um, it's just not okay. It's not fair. Um, and so I've worked really hard over many years to do something, um, some little bit, uh, to address that particular issue. And there's incredibly, incredible work being done every single day to, um, to address it on a much broader scale, but we took it on and we said, let's, let's use athletes, um, to communicate this message, not because they're doctors, although some of them were not because they're, um, um, the most knowledgeable about COVID, but because people in those communities are going to listen to them. Um, and uh, we started with underserved community. It was, it was incredibly successful. Um, it was supposed to be three months, two and a half years later, um, we've put together relationships that include um, Major League Baseball around the World Series, um, the Indianapolis 500, um, the World Cup, uh, the Miami Open, the Pac-12, the Big 12. Um, two days from now, um, when people go to the NFL draft, which, by the way, will be attended by 200,000 people. Just think about this for a second. It's not a sporting event. There's no game. But 200,000 people in San Diego, people will travel from all over the country to... Um, be in Kansas City for three days. Um, and there's a huge NFL experience, NFL festival outside of the actual draft. And there will be um, a COVID informational booth um, and there will be a um, COVID vaccination site um, right there that if people want to get vaccinated, um, they can. Um, the vast majority of those partnerships that we've put together on behalf of HHS um, and the White House uh, have been the result of relationships. They have been the result of people that I've known for 20, 25 years that when you pick up the phone and call them, 
just like I know I could pick up the phone and call you any day and you're going to say yes. <laughs> just and 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 it's reciprocal. I, there's nothing that you could ask me to do that I wouldn't say yes to. Why? Because we have a history, right? We've we've leaned in together um to make a difference. Um and um when you build those bridges, you can then rely on them to make a difference. Um, and um, it's a it's a great opportunity to um, um, cherish the relationships um, and then to sort of team up together to help make the world a better place. Well, to make them fuller, right? I mean, it seems like for you, sport is something that captivated you as a kid. I mean, it was, it was, it was in the heart. It was the character. It was the hero. It was following those heroes. It was, cause it's also, it's a representation of what it means to be a human being. Right. I think that we sitting on the couch feel like we've won when we see our hero do something spectacular on the, on the field of play. And so it's a celebration of who we are as human beings. But what's interesting is to see that as the entree and then the leverage and the relationships and the relationships, not necessarily, not necessarily just to take advantage of the relation, you know, it's not taking advantage of the relationships, but it's, but it's enriching the relationship and, and, and finding a way to make things continue to be better, to be better as, as a collective, as a group. So I love watching your, your evolution your growth, your, you know, we hope we keep getting better. And it's cool to see this, this idea of, of leveraging something to continue to do something that is good and better and great kind of thing. So it's interesting. Chris, because the, the, the transition, you know, when, when I was 10 years old, um, you know, my brother and I boxed and, you know, we, we would listen to Muhammad Ali fighting Joe Frazier on a radio. I know I'm dating myself here, but, and, and it would be like a round by round recap um, of the fight. And in the third round, you know, um, and we, we, we'd sit up at, you know, 11 o'clock at night in our little bedroom, you know, around a, a little box transition radio. Um, and, you know, the idea that all those years later, you know, I would be doing workshops with Muhammad Ali, um, where, you know, he would walk into a room of professional baseball players or professional basketball players. Um, and for the first five years of Athletes for Hope, he did it all the time. And his Parkinson's was so bad that um, he didn't say a word, not one word in 45 minutes. He sat in a chair next to me. Um and I might as well have been a flipping potted plant. I mean, all those athletes wanted to do was be in his presence. Um, and it wasn't because, you know, he was an amazing boxer, which he clearly was. But the guy gave up the three most important years of his boxing career to protest a war that he didn't believe in, right? Um, he understood, like Arthur did, that he had this platform that he could use to make the world a better place. And so, um, you know, when, when he passed away and his 
wife, Lonnie, who was on our board, came to me and said, look, the champ's gone, but you know, we want Athletes for Hope to sort of carry his torch forward. Um, you know, that's an incredible responsibility. He, um, he fed the hungry throughout Africa for years and years and years, and he did it very quietly um, because he'd been there and he saw and he fought in Zaire and he understood, right, that at, at some point I'm coming back here. I'm coming back here and I'm going to use um, my platform um, to make a difference. And it, it's, you know, I think the takeaway is, sure, it helps to be an Arthur Ashe and a Muhammad Ali, but you don't need to be, right? That that everybody, um, whether you're an athlete or just anybody that's out there that wants to make a difference, um, there's an opportunity to do that. Figure out what you care about, um, learn how to do it the right way and lean in. Uh, Ivan, well, thank you. I mean, that's just I, like you, Muhammad Ali was probably the biggest athlete when I was growing up. I mean, just Muhammad Ali. And then, and it was like, he was fighting whoever he was fighting in the ring. And then he's fighting Howard Cosell afterwards kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he kept up equally well in both arenas, which was just absolutely amazing. But that to me, I mean, that to me is what I love about sport, but it's also what I love about the nature of the human being. I and mean, this is like Diana Golden in a lot of ways, right? I'm going to fall down and I'm going to get back up. That's the mark of a great athlete, but it's a, a greater mark of a great human being. And make yeah, the place, the, let the, the rest of us believe. The, the ability to take that, you know, fall down and get back up and, you know, apply it to other aspects of life, right? Like, right? Like, what you know, what you talk about, um, you know, is so inspiring, but it's it's not inspiring just to athletes, right? I mean, um, it's inspiring to anybody that's listening to Chris Waddell speak because you you take that that attitude, that passion, that commitment, um, and you apply it to every aspect of your life, um, and um, you're making a difference out there every day, pal. And I I I so appreciate who you are and what you do and um, I'm happy to sort of be on the sidelines watching a lot of it. It makes me makes me proud of of the human being that you are and and the lives that you're changing. Well, it is completely completely a mutual respect sort of situation here. I love what you're doing and and love having having met you. I think my uh, my three mile trek to your to your office the first time we met was uh, was still something that I that I absolutely love. So uh... <laughs> I'll never forget it. Soaking wet and sweat and. Uh, uh, yeah. Bethesda, Maryland in the middle of yeah. the summertime. And so yeah. anyway, Ivan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to get to talk to you and I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Right back at you, pal. We'll be in touch. Thanks a lot. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in, to like it, to follow it. Please subscribe and we will continue to give you great content. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.